Hey everybody, welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Red. I'm joined here by Grace Sutanto, Tommy Keen, Paul Jean, and Peter Lee. And we are here to continue on in our series on reading guides to books in the Bible, which I've noticed have gotten a good bit of, uh, there's been a good bit of interest around these. And I hope that they're actually serving kind of a, a, a purpose of helping people prepare for Bible studies or sermons. Um, I've had some pastors reach out to me and say that they listen to this to kind of help them plan their sermon series. And that's really our goal um, is to help you dive into the scriptures and maybe see things about in the scripture or engage with the biblical text that you thought you knew well and come engage with it anew. But also, and this is just our selfish reason, is that it's really fun for us to sit around and talk about um, our field, as it were, together and get to hear each person's expertise come out. And I learn things every time we have this conversation, not only about the books, but also about my colleagues here. And I've just really enjoyed being in this time with you guys. So I appreciate, appreciate this conversation up till now, but now that's all going to change because we're diving into um, controversial. a controversial, yeah, controversial, super important <laughs> set of books. I say set of books, though we may call an audible halfway through this and decide that we're going to break this up into multiple episodes. But we're going to look at the pastoral epistles. That's First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Um, I'm on the record somewhere in a graduation speech, I think, calling these the seminary epistles, not the pastoral epistles, because at the end of the day, these are about training pastors. And, and I take from these letters um, uh, a real interest in the Apostle Paul for the training up of pastors and and really what the goal for pastoral training is. So I think these these are maybe more specifically relevant to us as seminarians and seminary professors Um than some of the other books in the Bible might clearly be, just in terms of our vocation. But I've already introduced the controversy, so let's go ahead and get started on that. I said that these show an interest of Paul, the Apostle Paul, as a historical character who's writing letters in the New Testament. And that itself is already pretty controversial. Even in some evangelical circles, that's kind of a controversial claim. I, th I think of the pastorals and authorship of the pastorals being like sort of authorship of Isaiah, that there's even disagreement in evangelical circles about this. So let's start off with that question. Uh, who is the author of these epistles? And what's the evidence, if, if there is any, that this is actually written by the Apostle Paul? I think, I think we should start the with authors, somebody who's written a commentary or two on this. Well, I, I take the Paul. View. Is it written by yeah, Paul? It's. I think it's written by Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tommy, didn't you say last, something last week about pseudepigrapha? Like um, that people just throw out that term, and it's sort of like accepted as like I, I always butcher this word pseudo. Finish the word pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha. Yeah. yeah. Ithic. And, and, and for those <laughs> yeah. for those listening at home, pseudepigrapha is the idea of uh, a pseudonym, okay, or a made up name, usually a famous name, being used on grapha, right, on writings, um, to give them, uh, put them in some kind of tradition, or give them some kind of maybe air of authority they might not otherwise have. So the argument here is that the pastoral epistles are actually pseudepigraphal, right, and that they're actually not written by Paul because they say they are, 
but they're not really written by Paul. They're written by maybe a disciple of Paul or someone writing in the strain of Paul. In the New Testament, the books that sometimes get most frequently labeled as pseudepigraphical are are the pastorals, Colossians, Ephesians. Colossians is sort of moving out of favor. More more and more scholars are seeing that as genuinely Pauline, but Ephesians still is looked on with suspicion. Uh, Jude, Second Peter, First Peter. Yeah, I think that's that's the list, right? Um, and I think you know at the outset can say something about that, that um, when scholars and readers are, are making those claims, they're not just trying to, many of them are not just trying to bash the Bible there. Some of them are, but not all of them are. They're actually, there are things that they're seeing, curiosities, we might say, in those texts that they're trying to understand. I mean, Ephesians, for example, um, doesn't sound like some of the other Pauline letters. It has a very different feel mm-hmm. to it. Um, it feels a little bit less, say, um, off the cuff than like a Galatians does, which, you know, Paul's angry and he's he's hot and he's, um, you know, um, really going after this issue. Um, and Ephesians feels much more organized and collected and calm and packaged. And so how do you explain those differences? Sim- similarly with the pastorals, you that the tone and tenor of those books is very different than you say than say Romans, and so it's not nothing um, that they're. It's not for no reason that they're having those questions, but you, in this case, I think their answer is is not a good one. Yeah. So, um, I'm sorry if this is like simplistic, but you know the arguments that there's a difference in like his uh, focus in theology or his language. I mean, there's so many reasons why that could be the case. We, you know, we have, first of all, we don't have that much of what Paul actually wrote probably. So it's not like we have this huge sample set, right? Where we can say, um, this is Pauline and his style and language and that's not. But, you know, we always have to remember, Paul was also like a pastor and missionary. So um, obviously, like if you, for instance, if you hear me speak at a youth conference versus like you might say um, at a, academic conference or a pastor's conference the focus is going to be different language is going to be different and so i've never really read something where like especially about the language and um, the theology that has been very persuasive and you know our listeners should know that this wasn't actually the view that the church uh, held for you know most of church history Um, the church has always believed that paul was the writer and um, i would just challenge and by the way i think a lot of this like, um, anyway, that's all I have to say. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good point is that there is, I think for all of us who are breathing this kind of modern air, we come at questions like this with instant skepticism. And it's almost like you have to prove that the apostle wrote the book, but that is assuming all kinds of things. One of them is that people were writing books deceptively back in that time. And that's not necessarily mm-hmm. true. Um, as a matter of fact, there's evidence that people didn't use pseudepigrapha that way, that it was kind of understood when you were writing in this way that that you were writing a work of fiction or something. I think you even see something maybe close to this. We could debate this later, but on Ecclesiastes, you know, Ecclesiastes evokes the spirit of Solomon. But what's actually interesting about it is that it never says Solomon. It kind of avoids that trap. It evokes Solomon, but it doesn't say it. And that's why people refer to the author of Ecclesiastes or the narrator there as Kohelet. You know, um, 
so we have this assumption that, oh, people were trying to deceive people all the time with these writing titles. And that's not necessarily true. And then secondarily, I mean, the default position historically and canonically is that this is written by Paul. It says it. That's how the early church received it. It's been that way throughout history. And yet I do think in our kind of modern mode, we have this suspicion that, well, if I can show some kind of deconstruction of that standard view uh, by showing a difference in style or language, then I can trust those observations above right, the testimony of the scripture. And, and that's, that's a notice. You just have to feel that shift that you're doing in your brain when you make that. You're, there's a different synapse firing off and you're saying, I trust my observation and mm-hmm. assumptions about how the literary style works over the something else. And I'm just, for me, not uh, setting aside the whole attestation of scripture part, that scripture is attesting to what it is and its truth and uh, as an inspired word. Um, I'm not sure that those arguments are that convincing. That's what it comes down to for me. Yeah. There is some debate on pseudepigrapha and how known a genre it is in, in the Greco-Roman world at the time that Paul's um, writing. And there is an argument out there that uh, the artifice of a, uh, writing under a pseudonym was well known and therefore would not be considered deceptive. And that's true, but it does depend on genre. Yeah. If you're writing a personal letter under somebody else's name, that that would be generally considered a no-no. So do we have common examples of that um, I outside don't know, of scripture? Yeah, I don't know the answer. I don't know how common that is. We even have an example of that for kind of fake Paul letters. Um, an early Christian writer did a uh, fake dialogue between Paul and Cicero. Um, and uh, and another um, we have we have an, another example of somebody who wrote uh, a kind of in the Pauline style, claiming in the because he loved Paul, um, and both of those letters were not <laughs> mm-hmm. they were not well not received. well received by the yeah. church. They they yeah. did consider it deceptive. So uh, so it's unlikely that if these are pseudonymous, and I don't think they are, uh, but if they were, they would not be well-received by the church. There's a human experience, I think, as well. I mean, you know, like, for example, um, if I read some of the stuff I wrote 10 years ago compared to what uh, I write now, it's not going to look the same. Mm -hmm. Just my style of writing has developed and and grown. Uh, The things I deal with is not the same thing from 10 years ago. Uh, I'd like to think you you see a maturity of thought (laughs) a development in style. Um, you know, my wife, Clara, does a lot of the editing of the stuff I write. She says, I'm just way too wordy in the past, uh, just too verbose, just take too long a way to explain things. And mm-hmm. and so I've tried real hard to be much more efficient and economical in, in the way that I uh, phrase things and, and d- different influences that begin to impact the way that I write. I suspect, you know, it's going to happen. You, you know, you, got, you have a man who writes in a certain way, given um, some of the things that he is dealing with in the context, let's say, of the church. And, you know, 10 years later, he's going to write differently just because of the nature of his growth and and um, and the issues he's dealing with. So it's not surprising for that reason that you would think there is going to be some difference here between First, Second Timothy, or Titus. But th- that doesn't necessarily mean this is written by different authors. And so what are some of the internal things that point us to the fact that this is written by Paul. Is there any evidence within the text itself that 
corroborates this idea that it's written by Paul, apart from the fact that it says by Paul? Yeah, I think there are, you know, it's one thing to write in the spirit of Paul, but there are so many historical statements that would seem either they're true or they're very misleading. I mean, when Paul says, I'm in prison, or when he says to Timothy, you know, remember when we wept together, remember, or when he says, come quickly, Titus, I want to like, I want to see you, right? Mm -hmm. These seem to be occasional historical, actual references. And so if a like non-Pauline writer were including that, that would seem to be going beyond just trying to write in the spirit of Paul. And it would seem like the author is trying to, the author wants to be received as the actual historical figure. I don't think that falls into the genre of pseudepigrapha. Yeah, Second Timothy 4 is really hard for me to explain why that passage would exist if Second Timothy is pseudonymous. I mean, Paul is asking Timothy to bring his cloak with him and bring the books with him. And, and that just feels very personal. Um, it, it doesn't feel Pauline because when, uh, when do you have that kind of thing in other letters? And so again, the kind of conclusion there is, is not that we're seeing, there's, there's nothing to see here. There is something to see here. How do we explain this? Well, it doesn't actually fit in pseudonymous literature as well. Pseudonymous isn't a good explainer there because why would you put that there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is a good you're not explainer, faking it very well. You're not well. either. You're really going all in uh, in faking it and not doing a great job at it. Or, but it's, that's not why people write pseudonymous literature under somebody else's name. It's it's to gain authority for something that they want to say that's important, and this just isn't important. Um, bring me my cloak. The best explainer for it is it's a personal letter by Paul to Timothy, his mm -hmm. friend. And I think that goes a long way to explain all of a lot of the uh, characteristics of the pastorals in terms of authorship is they're pers unlike most of Paul's letters, these are personal letters and they mm -hmm. have a different tone and, and character with them. So it's similar to Philemon in that way. It's dealing with specific issues yeah. that arise with this personal relationship. And also it's covering different topics. It's not just about the church in general. And kind of things he's heard in reports right. about the church, but it's about a specific vocation, which is becoming a pastor elder here in these in these growing churches. I do think related to authorship, um, and it's I think a little bit related to the new perspective on Paul as well, uh, because new perspective uh, proponents they tend to neglect the pastoral letters because. Uh, Paul's a little bit more explicit, or it's less ambiguous, that he is talking about salvation uh, from works versus salvation by grace. There are like these explicit statements that are hard to um, overlook. And so some uh, critics of the new perspective have said it's very convenient to say, well, the pastorals were not actually written by Paul, so we shouldn't be surprised that we might see um, like those kind of concerns from someone who wasn't actually Paul. So sometimes there's an agenda, a theological agenda, for uh, actually rejecting Pauline authorship. Yeah, to, because there's stuff in there that's problematic for your point of view. Yeah. yeah, well said. Quick error correction. I I said Cicero, which is obviously false. Um, Paul was in dialogue. Paul was purportedly in dialogue with Seneca. 
Oh, I thought that's the reason why it was obviously false was that it was Cicero. So it's Seneca who he's in discussion. Yeah, okay. who he's in a pretend, a, a pretend dialogue. I would have loved to have Paul seen it. And you know, yeah, that would be fun. Fake news, though. Fake news. Sorry, guys. <laughs> All right, so let's then dive into it. Paul begins the letter. Uh, we're starting with Timothy, though. I think we actually let, let me let me start in another way. Um, is there legitimacy to reading these together as a group or is there something, what is it that binds these letters together beyond the fact that they're writing to young pastors and training, I guess, but now in the field, you know, beyond that, what binds these letters together for second Timothy and Titus? Well, I haven't personally been so persuaded that they should, there are obviously overlaps and themes. I think it's actually very helpful to read first and second Timothy with each other. I think that's mm -hmm. the more obvious connection, but um, there are obvious like parallels in terms of like emphasis on household imagery, but someone could say that's true also for Colossians too. So I personally find it much more helpful to read them separately, um, except that I would read second Timothy in conjunction with first Timothy. Um, I don't think that's also a matter of orthodoxy to no. um, view them as uh, like pastorals. I, I think that's just maybe something. It's a that shorthand think, that we yeah, use, canonical shorthand. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the theology then? Let's talk about the, the letters to Timothy. What's what's the basic overall message there? What's he, what's he telling Timothy? Well, <clears throat> so one thing I've thought about a lot over the years is, um, and I think this is really important in the way we read First and Second Timothy and Titus and all the New Testament and Old Testament is that um, I actually don't think they make sense unless you assume that these letters were read aloud before a broader audience. Um, uh, like I'll give you an example. When you look at First Timothy, I think chapter two, there's this really weird section where Paul um, says something like, you know, I'm an apostle, um, I'm a herald. And then he says, I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth. And, you know, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. That doesn't really make sense if um, Paul is writing primarily to just an individual. And then each of these letters ends with the uh, plural, like uh, grace be with you all. And so, and, and that's not, by the way, just a pedantic, academic, irrelevant point. When you read like these letters as rhetorical pieces, they make a lot more sense that they're probably being performed in front of the believers. Just like, for instance, when on Sundays we have Bible reading, uh, it's read in front of the people of God. You know, an example is when you look at First Timothy 1, like Paul keeps, um, he begins by saying you have to silence certain persons. He just uses this like very ambiguous reference to certain persons. And I think that it would have then had the rhetor rhetorical effect where his audience would have asked, who are these? And at the very end, he actually names them, right? So I think it's very helpful to see that these were letters written prim primarily to Timothy, but secondarily and in view uh, a broader audience. So, can you say a little bit more about that? Because that, that is one of those features of of the pastorals that's kind of hard to get your mind around. On the one hand, they're personal letters. On the other hand, they do have this kind of public face to them. If Philemon was mentioned earlier, and it's it's similar, it's it's Paul writing to Philemon and the church that meets in his house. So that so it's a personal letter to Philemon, but there's also this kind of. Uh, yeah, definitely e yeah, the audience is list. Yeah. Like Philemon is a great example. Like Paul says some outrageous things in that letter where 
it would have there would have been some good social pressure on Philemon mm-hmm. whether he would have uh, observed these. And so I think in like First Timothy, um, for instance, I think what First Timothy is all about is Paul is trying to discredit the false teachers among the believers. And so I don't think it's, it's like that would have been too hard for Timothy to accept. And I think what's going on in that letter is Paul is basically saying, Timothy has legitimate authority, right? Because he maintains my gospel. And these troublemakers, they don't. And uh, Gordon Fee thinks this is overstated, but I actually think that the entire letter is basically written to discredit these false teachers. And endorse. And endorse Timothy so that the rest of the believers would follow, um, what do you call it, Uh, Timothy. And I I found that to be a much more helpful approach to 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy, I would look at it in this way. Uh, and this is again like poo pooed on in the actually, I shouldn't use that word in the podcast. <laughs> yeah, poo-poo is it not is a great dismissed word. It's a family academic, podcast. Uh, but I think the way Second Timothy is basically working is that uh, in First Timothy, Paul has tried to discredit the false teachers, but basically he's lost, and um, there are fewer believers remaining with Timothy, and so it's the question of perseverance. And the unique, I think, contribution of Second Timothy is that he frames perseverance in terms of personal loyalty, you know? And so um, it's not just, you know, the book of Hebrews in a lot of ways is about perseverance too, but that's, I think, the unique contribution. You know, I think in our day and age, we have this, um, like, suspicion of blind loyalty, rightly so. But I think that is, again, the unique contribution of Second Timothy, where Paul is calling Timothy to persevere, but he does it in an intensely personal way. You know, like he he calls Timothy to remember their relationship. So when you look at the opening chapter, he says, remember how we cried together. Remember how we, you know, we just did ministry together. And then he adds on top of that, remember your grandmother and your mother. And then he says, and remember the way I would remember my spiritual predecessors. And then he says, remember the way uh, we ordained you. Right. Like, and so there's something about that where he's really underscoring like personal um, loyalty when it comes to perseverance. So that's how I would think through First and Second Timothy. Mm-hmm. In a way that's not, I think right away, even today, as we think about like abusive leadership in the church, you've always mm-hmm. got these voices in the back saying, well, isn't that something that an abusive leader might say, right? You'd be loyal mm-hmm. to me regardless. And yet yeah. that we can't assume that that's the context. Uh, it, it sounds quite different. What's, what's kind of being depicted here is, you have these outsiders coming who are perverting the gospel, according to Paul, for their own personal ends, bringing in speculative theologies and uh, and genealogies, using that language that might might be referencing something like uh, Toledot of Genesis, you know, like different creation myths, um, different kinds of theologies and leading people astray. And Paul is... You know, think about your close friend coming to you and kind of grabbing you by the hand when you're wavering, right? And saying, "Remember all. Remember everything we've been through. Remember what we've done. Remember, remember your past. Remember who God has made you to be, right?" Because it's interesting, because Paul, it's not just, "Hey, stick with me." It's, yeah, remember. I mean, that passage in Second Timothy three sixteen that we quote so often, and talking about the Word of God being inspired, being breathed out by God. It's coming in the context of found in these scriptures that your mother and your grandmother have transmitted to you. Right. This idea of handing down the faith 
know, kind of a notion of regular fida, even this kind of handing down of, to use Paul's language, what you've been entrusted with, almost like it's a substance, right? And right. protect it, like hold it dear. Don't let people come and steal it or break it or 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 destroy it. Yeah, that that idea of memory, remembrance, especially in this in this context where the apostolic age is coming to a close is such is so central to all three of the of the pastorals that you know that Paul is uh, there's a, a repeated phrase um this is a trustworthy saying and and I don't know what you think about this Paul but uh, many have kind of cited that as this is a this is almost a formulaic way of introducing a, a some sort of creed or song or you know it is known this is known by the community and Paul then again endorsing that both to uh, these pastors and to the communities that they serve. Um, it's it's interesting, you know, we've got examples of Paul in, in Galatians, we've got examples of Paul dealing with uh, a Jewish heresy, uh, a heresy that's being spread among Jewish believers. And then um, in the Corinthian correspondence and in, in Ephesians and Colossians, it looks like we have these uh, heresies, this heterodoxy that's spreading among the Gentile churches, and it's very eclectic, like as you mentioned, Scott. You know, it's it's very syncretistic and looks like yeah, you know, there's a bit of Old Testament there, there's a bit of uh, classic Christianity, but then wed with, and we don't exactly know what it looks like theologically, but wed with these kinds of weird magi- magical kinds right. of ideas and calendars and dates and special Astron- astronomical kinds of things. So it's it's hard to kind of get a beat on what that is. But then in the midst of all of that eclectic heterodoxy, Paul is, is encouraging Timothy and others, stand firm on the tradition that you've received. Well, and it feels very, to me, this is a reading it as an Old Testament guy, it feels very priestly to me. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about who who's who are the ones who guard the thing with which we have been entrusted in the Old Testament, it's the priests and the Levites. That's why they're carrying swords, right? They're standing around the the cult. They're standing around the tabernacle slash temple. You know, holy of holies, the presence of God with which we have been entrusted, and they're protecting it from those who would come and profane it, rendering it unclean. Uh, ignoring the value of the thing. And, and so often the gospel is presented as word, which is really in the office of the prophets, right? And yet here, interestingly, it's it's kind of presented as a, as a treasure to be mm-hmm. safeguarded, mm-hmm. which is very priestly in Old Testament mm-hmm. language, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's kind of, ca- you know, he's casting these pastoral epistles in an interesting way. Paul elsewhere will say, don't you know you're all priests? All Christians are priests now, right? Um and that's true, but yet here he's kind of casting the pastoral ministry also as a special kind of priesthood, you know, that, that you're protecting the thing that's been handed down from those who would come and render it profane, which is an important part of pastoral ministry today. I think yeah. that we need to remember the pastor may not be necessarily the best teacher in the congregation. He may not even be necessarily the most um, uh you know, passionate or awe-inspiring teacher. But what is his job? The pastor's job is to safeguard the gospel, right? To safeguard the, to speak on behalf of the community on Sunday morning. And yes, it's prophetic. And we talk about that, how that's a prophetic aspect to it, but there's also a priestly aspect to it. You're protecting the gospel. That's why it's it's given to elders in sessions to administer discipline, uh, right? Amongst church members, because part of their job is to safeguard the community. Uh, built around the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's this 
priestly aspect of protecting the thing with which you have been entrusted, which is really threaded, I think, throughout all of these pastorals. It made me kind of like one of the unifying themes. Okay, but as we're going through that, it raises all of these other questions because he's talking to pastors and he's talking about who can be pastors and who can't be pastors. And it raises some interesting questions that have been an issue in the church. And we don't want to ignore the fact that those are these are these are difficult passages. Yeah, there there are some challenging, really challenging passages, and and I kind of think back to our goal as readers' guides, and you know, I think about some of the books that are really great books, but you can't get over the fact that there's you know really difficult passages in them. James is a great book, and then you got James chapter two, and this theological problem that is particularly challenging for Protestants, and it kind of um, for I think for some readers, it gets so distracting that it, it almost ruins the whole book. And that's the case here with, with some of these really challenging passages in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and even Titus. Um, I think our goal should be, okay, what are the big picture reading, you know, as a reading strategy, how do I keep going? And I like that priestly idea mm-hmm. as that as the, whatever, whatever these passages mean, I can keep going uh, because I've got this this overarching theme that Paul is trying to 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 accomplish. And then maybe in a subsequent episode, we can look at, okay, here's these stumbling blocks. Here are these passages we need to consider and think through more carefully and strategically as we teach them to the church. Uh, but let's not lose sight of the big, Paul's big vision for uh, sh- shepherding the church in love. Yeah. So dear, dear listener, in other words, we're going to come back to some of those passages in a later episode when we can give them the time that they deserve. But we want to wrap up here, this reading guide and just highlighting some of the major, now that we've discussed authorship, we've discussed the purpose and at least one of the themes, what else do you need to keep in mind as you're working through the pastoral epistles? Well, you know, when it comes to first Timothy, I think this is one of the uh, most important points. Uh, when people think about first and second Timothy, they know that famous, um, passage you know all scripture is inspired by god and is useful for teaching rebuking and Mm -hmm. so forth um and so i think that can sometimes lead to a spirituality that is uh borderline on biblicism versus one of the i think main takeaways of first timothy is that it really does promote a confessional spirituality that's actually something so it doesn't obviously endorse any specific catechisms or confessions that we have today but it definitely does reject this idea that like um our spirituality is limited to either the individual or like a group of individuals in a certain place like uh, it's everywhere in first timothy that you can actually miss it but paul continues to underscore the need to maintain the traditions that have been passed um, along to us and so Mm -hmm. whatever like i don't want to say whatever you know, confession you subscribe to, at the very least, um, there isn't a place for this individualistic me and the Bible spirituality. It's very, it's again, promoting a kind of confessional approach that transcends your your immediate congregation and your immediate time. So I, I think that's just something that readers want to keep that's, in mind. That's great. We, in, in one of my classes, uh, it's an intro to theology, and I, I start with this argument for why the Bible or how the Bible shows us that we should do theology. Mm-hmm. And there I'm kind of defining theology as re, is recognizing that God has spoken, 
remember what he has said and pass it on, mm -hmm. right? In other words, this idea of tradition and that you see this all the way back, right away at the beginning. You know, what is the problem of the garden? Well, the serpent comes and says, what did God say again? Mm -hmm. Like, do you have you remembered and passed it on? And throughout, whether you're going to Moses, who's answering the children who say, why are we doing these things? Because there's this confessional recitation, right? The Lord, our God, who brought us out of Egypt. You know, when you get to the restoration community, you have Ezra the scribe stand up in Nehemiah 8. And what's one of the things they do is he, he reads out the law and then the elders go out and explain the law. Right to the people, it says that they untangles the law for them. You know, probably even translating it to some extent while interpreting. Jesus starts his ministry by recollecting the law and 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 you know, not just remembering it but passing it on to others. Um, announcing his ministry by reading the Isaiah scroll, saying, "Not one jot or tittle will pass away." And then you see it here, as you, as you said so perfectly with Paul. Paul's really basing this all on this idea that Christianity didn't start last week right? Christianity is a long tradition. And you know, Timothy, even you know, your grandmother and mother have passed it down to you, right? That there's this, we're, we're in this long line, and yeah, it is a confessional line of transmitting uh, you know, sound doctrine from one generation to the next. And that's something that both Ti Timothy and the letters to Timothy and Titus you know, focus on is this multi-generational remembrance. And yeah, what do we call that now? We call that confessionalism. We call that tradition. Systematic theology. Amen. It's actually a consistent <laughs> emphasis across the New Testament. Okay, that was that was that was Gray's one I, contribution I to this conversation. Really trying to throw it to you, Gray. It's really toss that ball over your way. Well, I feel like I'm just you know a pleb here in this discussion, so I'm I'm, I'm enjoying listening. Hardly. Well, actually, you know, you make a good point though about it being systematic theology. That is true. When you look at confessional statements of groups of people, and this is around the world, not merely Western, but around the world, they are typically systematic and format. That is something that systematic theology does, right? As it concatenates, to use Warfield's language, it concatenates the teaching of scripture in a way that we can articulate in credos, you know, in belief mm -hmm. statements. Um, and biblical theology, the story is great, but it's hard to put that together into a community expression, right? So what do we typically do? We typically say, here are the things we believe, and we start doing systematic theology. So there is a purpose for you, Gray, here at the seminary, and we're glad you're here. I'm very thankful to be here. But yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> All getting aside, go ahead and say something useful to, for us, Tommy. Uh, I was just going to say that's a <laughs> good place to land. That, yeah, I think that's actually a good place to land, but um, that's a consistent emphasis in the later books of the New Testament, that idea of, rem of remembering, and that's how it's packaged, remembering passing along the tradition in light of the eschatological enemies of God that face the church in the post-apostolic age, uh, what should the church be doing? Standing firm on what it's received in the teaching yeah. of the, the Old Testament, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the apostles. And that's not just an intellectual endeavor. That involves the whole of the person. Paul, as you cited you know, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's the building up of the whole man, right? The whole person onto this task.
This has been a great conversation. Um, we tried not to be reductionistic talking about these very important books in a short span of time, but we look forward to coming back and digging into some of the more difficult passages and, and at least trying to develop a framework on how do we apply these to the church today. So thanks everybody for being a part of this conversation. That's all we've got for this week. We look forward to being with you again next time. Until then, take care. Thank you.